Welcome to the Escaping Enemy Mode podcast, a podcast to help you recognize when your brain is treating others as enemies to be defeated instead of as people to be loved. With neuropsychologist Jim Wilder and Brigadier General Ray Woolridge, we'll discover the ways that Enemy Mode sabotages our best intentions and we'll find pathways together to refriend the people around us. Let's get to work. Well, good morning, friends. I'm joined by Major General Retired Jack Briggs. Jack and I served together in the military. Uh, He's worked for nonprofits since his retirement a few years ago, and he's now the CEO of the Springs Rescue Mission in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, Ray. How are you? I'm doing really well. Uh, We're kind of in that post-Thanksgiving glow, and I know it was a big event both in your family but also at the mission last week. Absolutely. I want to I want to thank you for your military service, uh, for your example. Uh, Jack's a fighter pilot, and he's got some stories he could tell, but those stories are beyond the scope. Some of them in our, are in our Escaping Enemy Mode book, and so if you want to hear a couple of Jack's stories, read the book. But we wanted to talk about Enemy Mode and, and the work you're doing at, at the rescue mission. And uh, what, just in general, Jack, uh, what part of your life or world has been most impacted by Enemy Mode? Well, first of all, Ray, thanks for uh, the opportunity. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a privilege to serve now. It was a privilege to serve in the military. Um, you know, uh, having had conversations with you and others about uh, the idea of enemy mode, uh, I see it most directly, I think, in two different places. Uh, one, obviously, is uh, here at the rescue mission, we engage with people that are in what we call a low barrier status, meaning they they have really no other place to go. Um, and our, uh, our mission is a low barrier mission. So we accept clients, uh, even if they happen to have, uh, felony convictions, if they are addicted, uh, if they're actively using, they can't use or drink while they're here on campus, but we get people that are in that condition and, and there, there's a complete and total lack of trust, uh, when we first engage with them, but they're desperate. And so you see a lot of the enemy mode uh, activity coming from their brains because they're just responding to the stimulus that's around them initially, and they don't trust anybody and they don't trust anything. And so we have to break through that. Uh, And and those are our first little uh, activities that we do with them, mostly on a transactional nature um, initially, because that's what they're used to on the streets or prison uh, in gangs, uh, doing drug deals. It's everything is, if I do this, you'll do that. If you do that, I'll do this. And so we try to put a positive twist on that. And we start off very small and very low barrier, if you will. And we say something along the lines of, Hey, we know you want to come in, you want to get some food or you want shelter for the night. Uh, You have something we want. Uh, Let's trade. And what we'd like is your name, your real name, not your street name, like candy or cowboy or sugar or whatever it is, we'd like your real name. Now on the street, your name is a commodity because once we know your name, we can know what your background is. If you have any convictions, if you have any open warrants, if you've been kicked out of other places, we can find all that out. What we'll do then is we'll work through that. And and almost every time we'll let folks come in and that builds trust. And that's the very first thing that we try to do is, is to show that we are worthy of their trust and, and they can, that they can be trusting to us and we can begin to trust them as well. So uh, when we look at enemy mode, because of the, it, it really rolls out of a lack of trust in a lot of cases, 
this is one of the first things that we do. The second sort of side to this is people external to the, uh, to the rescue mission um, who, who really don't have a good picture of what we do. Uh, they have it in their mind what they think we do. Um, and, and they can be fairly judgmental uh, at times. Uh, they can, uh, they, because they don't understand, it's a little scary. Uh, and, and, and so their reaction is also going to be a lack of trust. Um, uh, so I, I would boil it down to that initially, is, is trying to help people work through that. Now, you, you bring in lots of volunteers, and you train them to uh, work with the homeless population, the houseless population. And how do you help your volunteers stay out of enemy mode with, with the people they're dealing with who come in from the streets? I think it's, uh, that's a great question because people come here. Well, first of all, I will tell you this. Uh, one of the questions I, I get a lot when, they find, when people find out what I do is they say, um, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about volunteering. You know, I could, could I come down and volunteer? And I, 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 I sort of trick them a little bit. I say this. I say, yes, that would be great um, because I need somebody to come down here and pull weeds. <laughs> <laughs> and they feel stuck now because they've kind of volunteered to come down and yeah. then I've given them something they don't want to do. Uh -huh. I'm like, and I go, I'm just kidding. What I would like for you to do is come down and take a tour. And look and see what we do and how we do it. And then if there's something that you really like, then maybe you'll come back and do that again. Well, on the tour, we and I mentioned this in, uh, when we for the book, we have a statue of Jesus in the courtyard, which is very unusual. It's not, not the fact that we have a statue of Jesus, but it's, a, it's kind of a newer, uh, not new age. That's not the word I'm looking for, but it's very modern. Mm -hmm. I would put it that way. And it's, and often I'm, I will hear people say, well, that's not what I thought Jesus would look like. And it's like, yeah, you, you know, you might have to change your mind a little bit about what your perceptions or your, 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 you thought you were going to see when you came here, because you're going to have to, you're going to have to break through some of your, the things that you think about homeless people. Mm. They're all crazy or they're all drug users. And that's just not the case. It's a, it's a wide spectrum of people they're in different situations and, and you're going to have to work through that so what can you do on your end to to help build trust and and confidence between yourself and the clients as a volunteer that's that's training that we give people and it goes back to that bit about uh transactional trusting and that sort of thing mm -hmm. and that's where we work with volunteers now a few minutes ago when we were talking, you, you mentioned a, an analogy that's very helpful. You, you'll meet Christians, and they don't have a lot of knowledge about the homeless, and, and you connected it to holiday meals. Tell, tell right. our listeners more about that. Right. So, uh, again, when I, when I talk to people, particularly people of faith, um, they, they have a, a, a certain amount of compassion, but they have a lack of understanding of what they're really asking. And so I'll get the – whenever I get this question – why don't they just, I know who I'm, I know that I'm talking to somebody that, that really has very little experience or context for uh, someone that's homeless and addicted. And I put it in the, and so I go back to him, I say, you know, let me see if I can relate it to you and you, maybe your own life. And I use the holidays and I use Thanksgiving as a, as a starting point. And we, you know, just recently had Thanksgiving here. And I say, um, you know, this was the Thanksgiving where you weren't going to overeat. This, you made that decision ahead of time. 
And then Thanksgiving shows up and Aunt Edna brings out her, her, uh, her special sweet potato surprise. And it's her love language to the family. And, and it's actually really good. I mean, not only is it her love language, but you like it. And you have that first bite and you go, oh, wow, this is good. I remember this. I, and you overeat it and the, everything else. And by the end of the evening and Thanksgiving, you've, you've, you've gone past what you thought you were going to stop at. You do the kind of the same thing out throughout the holiday season because you, your guard's down now. You're in those situations where you haven't really thought about. And, and so you sort of, you know, overdo it a little bit. But then you come to January and you're like, you know what? I am going to get in shape this year and I'm, I'm going to the gym a lot. Right. And then that trails off too. And I, I say, now, now you're a totally fully functioning human being and you have trouble with your habits. Now imagine being a meth addict who sleeps on the street and trying to manage that habit. It's very difficult. So when we say, why don't they just, whether it's get a job or maybe stop using drugs or just talk to somebody about the voices in their heads, that's a very difficult thing to do. And so we don't start there. We start back at what I talked about before, which is the basic transactions that we're trying to create. Because what we're trying to create in that moment is trust. It's baby step trust, but it's trust. Because as you move out of the enemy mode, which is the non-trusting sort of a thing, and you build trust with someone, later on, your transactions are going to be more developed. They're going to be more complex. They're going to have higher standards for both you and the client. You're, you're reinforcing that trust. And at that time, you also get into the concept of grace. Because now at this end of the scale, you have enough trust with each other that if something comes up short, either you do or they do, you have enough grace built up to say, I know you're trying your best and, and I know you're not trying to do something manipulative. Uh, let's get back on the horse, mm-hmm. right? You know, that, that's where that trust and grace thing can, can really be powerful as, as you're making big strides now in people's lives. Man, you're giving us some powerful working models of how people can help others escape enemy mode. One model you gave is when you point your volunteers to the statue and you remind them who they are and what Jesus said about how we should relate to the poor and, and you're breaking down stereotypes. Another, another model you get giving our listeners is uh, you want to find a homeless person's name, their real name. That communicates dignity and worth to that individual. And to do that, they have to trust you also. So exactly. even though the, the relationship's going to have some, some boundaries and some transactional requirements, there's a, there's a relational aspect to it. Your volunteers are looking them in the eye and communicating dignity and worth. And we can help you, but we have to know your name. As you, as you start to move up the scale, one of the things that you're also going to do is you're going to empower them that they have the capacity to teach you something. The humility of the fact that I don't have all the answers, right, in your life. <laughs> Imagine that, right? I'm, yeah. I'm, t- I'm going to tell you how to live your life, right? That, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's let's get you stable. And then as we develop this relationship, this relationship becomes a bit of a two-way street because now we start to empower them to say, these are the things that I'm looking for in my life, the positive things, not the negatives, right? The positives, the directions away from the street or away from addiction. But if we do that, 
we have to have the humility to say, and along the way, you're going to teach us things. Yeah. Right. And, and that really breaks down this idea of we are competitors or enemies, or I'm the teacher and you're the student. And we try to level that power differential just as much as we can, because in the end, what we're looking for is a, is a self, um, reliant individual who not self-sufficient because nobody is self-sufficient. We all don't make our own clothes. We don't grow our own food, right? We work in community, but we're reliant enough on ourselves that we can operate in community where we're an equal in that relationship. You said something in the book and the quotes in there, and I, I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote, but you said something like everybody here at the mission is broken, including me. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's where the humility can come from, because we all know we are incomplete. We all know we're on a journey as people. Right. And, and when I talk to folks external to the rescue mission, whether they're people of faith or not, they all kind of understand that. Hmm. They all, you know, when I talk in the, and, and, and I bring it back to myself or to the folks here and I say, look, when God looks down at what's going on at the rescue mission, God doesn't see straight arrow Jack and, and some broken uh, <laughs> meth addict. God sees two broken people. Yeah. We're just broken in different ways. And when I, yeah. when I communicate that to somebody that may be a little hostile to the mission because maybe of our faith or something like that. And, and I, and, and again, you have to show hum, humility in relationship. Let, let's, let's wrap it up with this. You go out and you do community engagements. You work with a lot of volunteers from all walks of life. And you probably run into people who are very living from an as if identity. Mm-hmm. And they might be an as if Christian who, who live by rules and regulations and by an appearance versus people who have found their relational best self. How do you how do you experience that in the people you relate to, whether they're donors or volunteers? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned before, a lot of it is that, uh, you know, why don't they just because mm-hmm. um, because, again, I, I get that. Uh, they have a picture in their mind of, of what a homeless person should be. Mm. And, and we have to break that stereotype. We have to break away, if you will, from the idea that, that you, uh, an individual looking in has, has a real good concept of what's going on. Yeah. And so we invite them to come down and take a, a tour without a doubt, hundred, hundred percent of the time at the end of the tour, people go, I had no idea. Mm. And, mm. and so it's experiential. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue my way into somebody understanding this. Hmm. I, I am not going to, to fact my way into it. Like here are the facts about hmm. it. Hmm. People aren't interested in that either. Um, th- for them to really understand it, they have to experience it. And once yeah. they experience it, then, then a lot of that, that armor or that, that protection and, and it can be, and it, this is something that has happened as well, is pretty much when I talk to people uh, at the end of the conversation or, or to connect with me, they will say, you know, my husband, son, daughter, friend, nephew, cousin, uncle, aunt, somebody in their life has experienced either homelessness, addiction, or mental health issues. Hmm. When we personalize it that way, and we say, these are the same people, they just may be alone and they don't have a resource to go to. Now, all of a sudden, that, that protective armor comes away a little bit because they, they see in their own lives where this has been. Sure. And, and you're creating compassion in them. Right. 
they want to show you they're compassionate. Okay. Like, you know, I want to help, but why don't they just? Right. right? It's right. like, okay, yeah, you've got your little compassion check. I get that. Um, <laughs> but, but, but back it up just a little bit and let's talk about you in your life. I'm, I'm sure you've experienced something like this. Yeah. And that's where we can start to make headway in there. Well, Jack, this has been a delight. You've given us a lot to uh, think about. Thanks for the generosity of time both today, oh, but also in the hours we spent talking together as we were doing our research for the book. Uh, Jack, any last words for our listeners? I would just, uh, again, uh, take the time uh, as you read or, or you think through these things. Is What can you do in your, your, on your side of the conversation with somebody that is coming to you in that, quote, enemy mode? Um, what can you do? that will start to break down the barriers. And you may have to start off transactionally with them because that's their armor is up. But as you, as you start to have those conversations, working towards trust and showing humility in your own conversation, not rolling over and, and just being you know, the victim of whatever the conversation's gonna be, but having the humility to go, you know what, I'm learning from you. Here's, here, here's something that I've learned from you let me see if I can repeat it back to you in a way that maybe would help this conversation move forward. That's the sort of thing that's really going to break down some of that and get you into a better place. Wonderful. Well, thanks. It's great to see you today. God bless. Yeah, take care. And I hope, uh, I hope uh, the book continues to do well. And uh, I look forward to talking again. Amen. Thank you. Ray, thank you so much for that interview with Major General Jack Briggs. Um, just fascinating to see the work that he is doing and how that relates to enemy mode and the as-if self. And I did want to dive a little bit deeper into what that means. Um, so, Jim, from from your work in brain science, what is the as-if self? Yeah, well, the the brain has one center that, tries to figure out what's going on in the mind of the person that I'm talking to. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we call that sort of our mutual mind or mind sight, or it's, it's how I understand what somebody else is thinking. Mm -hmm. But then the brain flips that around and the next process says, who do they see when they're looking at me? What do they think is going on in my mind? And that brain, part of the brain right there, uh, is the part that becomes the as-if self. We just become whatever someone else thinks we are at the moment. And mm -hmm. with that, we can figure out, usually uh, ba babies by 18 months of age realize, I can get better results if I pretend to be somebody different and feel differently than I really do. Because uh, if I let you know I'm upset, for instance, you might not give me the cookie I want. But if I can act less upset than I am, I might, my chances of getting a cookie are better. So we become pleasers of others. So the as-if self is a, is a pleasing you uh, identity, which may or may not be who I really am inside. <clears throat> In fact, mm. it, it has elements of who I am inside, but they're all been yeah. cut and pasted uh, in a way that looks good on the outside. Hmm. And so if I can summarize what you're saying, it, there's a, the first step is we have a, the mutual mind process where we're 
trying to understand what the other person is thinking. Yeah. And then the as if self is reflecting back what we think they want to see. Yeah. What they, what they're looking at when, when they're looking at us and we can configure that so that we get the best results. So, you know, it's a social mask of, so, of some kind. Yeah. And what does that, what does that feel like in the body? Cause I imagine that that, that would be a very like high output process of like, just like a lot of energy, potentially stress that a person's putting out to try and in a sense, it feels like almost to be like God, to be able to re read somebody else's thoughts and also reflect back to them what we think that they, they want to see. Uh, it's actually doesn't feel much of anything in the body because it's the step of the brain before we connect to our own bodies. So we're mm -hmm. sort of uh, uh, unbodied people when we're doing that, where we actually want to suppress our own body because it might give us away. So, you know, we, uh, you know, the poker face, you don't let people see what's really going on inside. You present, um, you know, this image, you know, you, uh, <laughs> the joke used to be, you don't let them see you sweat because your yeah. body could give you away. Mm. Jim, is this how, why your polygraphs work so well? Yeah. Yeah. They, um, they get right past the um, as if self and uh, read what your body's actually feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's how they do it. Is, is the as if self something that we should avoid at all times or is there a useful element to it as well? Well, the useful part of that brain is uh, that it allows us to, uh, first of all, have some realization of how we're coming across to others. And, you know, mm -hmm. people, people who have no awareness of how they're being seen by others are really socially crippled. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, we have to understand how the people see us. Uh, and this, this part of the brain also calculates our least harmful alternative. So mm -hmm. it's like, well, there's a lot of ways I could play this. You know, it's like, here's the cards I'm holding. There's a lot of ways I could play this. Which one's going to work best? Which one's going to be the least harmful? We need to know those going into any given decision. But the problem becomes when that becomes the last word that takes over. And now I'm just going to be whatever works well. You know, we, we essentially become a very elaborate manipulation of the world. Mm -hmm. We become entirely transactional. Uh, I just become whatever gets the best results. And that will not reflect uh, our deepest values or what's really mm -hmm. important to us. It'll just uh, be externally controlled. It's a, it's a externally controlled way of living. Um, mm -hmm. Although you might feel like you're, um, you know, you're winning, but it does cause enormous amounts of stress to your actual physical self who's being suppressed the whole time. So right. uh, our bodies are really taking a hammering when we're doing that. And and we call this in the book avatars. We take on an mm -hmm. avatar identity, like you're you're going into a video game in the metaverse, and you're this warrior rogue prince with a big sword <laughs> and a, a wand and all this jazz. Mm -hmm. But that that's just your persona. It's not the real you. Mm -hmm. And it might be fun for a little while, but it's dangerous when it becomes uh, your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And, and, and at some point it becomes, uh, who you are most of the time, or, or at least what you present to the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like this is such a, 
unhealthy and potentially dangerous place to live con- consistently. Is there, have you guys developed um, pathways or exercises to try and uh, cut through the as if self? Well, the biggest alternative is to become the embodied self. And uh, uh, so <laughs> the simple thing we've talked about almost every program has been breathing. You know, one thing about having a body <laughs> yeah. is, is you breathe. You notice yep. how your body feels. You you uh, pay attention to the, the signals uh, inside your own body. Um, and and the as-if-self tends to monitor what's going on in the other person. And it's mm. always good to know what's going on in them. But now let's spend some time also being attentive to ourself. And that's one of the things that... Um, mindfulness for instance will contribute to it's like notice that uh you're present in the in this moment and you're wearing a body uh as as part of engaging with with who you are so the the practices that uh involve uh, sometimes just simply moving you know if you if you really uh get focused on other people uh it's mm-hmm. it's good to move uh, <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I just wanted to play guitar in the worst way. And I would sit and mm-hmm. watch these, these older guys are playing guitar. And then all of a sudden I noticed I just drooled on myself, you know, my, my <laughs> mouth would, <laughs> hanging open. I'm so out of tune with my own self that I was like, yeah, drooled on. <laughs> terribly embarrassing, but you know, it's like, Hey, yeah. boy, get back in your body. Now this is, you know, uh, you're here and let's pay attention to that. So yeah. getting in touch with your body is, is one thing. Another thing is uh, uh, looking at your triggers. Mm-hmm. We talk about playing with the triggers in our book, uh, borrowing from someone else, but, and I can't remember the name, but um, thing is, if the same thing trips you up, mm-hmm. there's an indication of something deeper going on. It could be a reflection of an as if persona, you know, and, and, and getting to your best self may require some deeper work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's always fear behind it. You know, the, uh, that's why it's an enemy mode component and a mm-hmm. component of the worst kind of enemy mode. And that's uh, the intelligent enemy mode, because now uh, when I'm calculating things, I am calculating, uh, you know, how to get the right result from you. But instead of doing it in a caring way, I'm now calculating how to make you lose and uh, the bigger your loss, the the more my win sort of sort of thinking. That brings us back to the conversation we had with um, Major General Jack Briggs. Just it was remarkable to me how how he was stepping into very low trust environments. Um, and I imagine there's all kinds of triggers in a low trust environment. There's a lot of ways that you're trying to protect yourself and make sure you don't get taken advantage of. And it seemed like that was a situation he was in all the time. And yet he's going in and trying to make a connection, trying to start building a more trustworthy environment. And one of the, one of the strategies that he had that he mentioned kind of offhand at the start that seems like there's more going on there than maybe readily apparent is he would insist on learning someone's real name versus their street name. And mm-hmm. I wonder um, why, why is that such an important building block to start with? Yes. Well, uh, 
that goes right back to the as if identity. The street name is the person's as if identity. This is who I want to portray myself as being so that I, I win when I'm out on the streets. And mm. their real name uh, gives us a hint or a possible doorway to their uh, their deeper identity, who they, who they were. Um, and so now how you go about building trust is you raise the person's status. You say mm. they're valuable things about you. And it's a dangerous procedure if we raise the status of the as if self instead of the true self, the best self. Oh, interesting. And so mm-hmm. he's going to let, we're going to try to raise your status here, but I want to have some chance of, of raising your status, not as your street operator self, who's mm-hmm. probably fairly sociopathic, but as your attachment self. Who did people uh, hopefully attach to when you were little? Uh, what, who were you then? And, mm-hmm. and, those names that were called uh, call for those different parts of our identity to come out. It's a very odd, but very characteristic thing of human beings that what name you call them brings out different parts of their identity. You know, the uh, rescue mission by definition is an enemy mode environment, at least initially, because that's kind of the currency on the streets. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Jack's got to lead his volunteers to communicate dignity and worth to these people who need help, these houseless people that are coming to them. But at the same time, there needs to be some boundaries and some, uh, because there will be some transactions, uh, you know, and, but staying relational in the midst of that. And really the mission mm-hmm. can't help them until they know their real name. They yeah. can't really get them connected to the resources. They're not, uh, the resources don't want to know, well, this guy's spider. Well, what's his real name? And then we can mm-hmm. actually, but that's a risk for the homeless person because maybe he has a record. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe this name worked when he was in corrections. A lot of the, a lot of the people on the street are coming from corrections too. So. Mm-hmm. And there's one other element that, that he brought in that I, I feel like I want to explore a little bit more. Um, he mentioned how people of faith are particularly susceptible to the dangers of the as if self. And, and Jim, I wonder if you can give a little bit of insight into that of where, where does that thinking come from and why is the as if self a, a real danger for people of faith? Um, yeah, well, that's, Definitely the question of how do I want to be seen? And so people of faith want to create, uh, you know, if you want to get along in a community of faith, you want to look like the most faithful. Uh, At least that's how it's assumed uh, by a fearful brain. Uh, Now, an attached brain wouldn't go about thinking about it that way. But people who enter their their, uh, faith walk uh, community with fear of being discovered, which most people have, uh, mm-hmm. like I said, all well, back to 18 months of age, we're already figuring out that if you knew who I was, was really feeling, you wouldn't want me. Uh, mm-hmm. So now we're going to portray ourselves. We're going to create an avatar that is just the best looking Christian possible. And we're going to try to do what Dallas Willard calls sin management. I'm going to try to manage my sin so that you don't, it never gets past the avatar. You can't see it back here. And, uh, you know, and because I don't know what percentage, but a huge percentage of other people in that faith community are doing exactly the same thing. No one wants to pull off anyone else's mask because you know you 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 know you're going to see mine over here, uh, and so it becomes a uh, 
you know, I won't knock down your avatar if you don't knock down mine community. And, you know, when you're building avatars, they just become more and more elaborate. Uh, and, uh, you know, by everything you teach the person about spiritual life goes into avatar uh, creation, you know, oh, so you need to have a shield. Okay, I'll have a shield. And, you know, oh, you need to have, uh, you know, be quiet when you, uh, when you pray. Okay, I'll do that or whatever it is. Uh, and uh, the, the problem with that, of course, is it doesn't actually reach the part of us that's embodied. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who are in public ministry and are always on a platform and always teaching, mm-hmm. the, the rise of uh, media and social media in particular has made this particularly an acute problem. Mm-hmm. Because there's a big, if there's a huge disconnect between what people see when you're on screen and what they encounter when you're in person, Mm-hmm. that that right there is a, and all of a sudden maturity gaps where what is he really like i just know what he is when he's preaching or what mm-hmm. is she really like because i just know what she's like when she's on screen and on social media and man they really look like they've got it together mm-hmm. and and i think we need to start with the presumption none of us really have it together mm-hmm. we're all broken but you add a little narcissism to that and then you get the thinking that I am making God look good, or I'm making my mm. my church look good, or I'm making my faith look good. And so the better I look in public, the better God looks. Uh, mm-hmm. And so now I've got sort of like even a moral obligation to keep that image going. Mm. And of course, people yeah. demand that of their leaders too. So, uh, you know, it, it really can become quite uh, insular. Mm. And it makes me think of kind of conversations I've had with, with friends and family where it's the the conversation about ruining my witness of like, I don't want oh, yeah. people on the outside to see this bad thing. I am this bad thing I did or this person who I am because it's going to ruin my witness. And it, it really reminds me of the, the as if self of like, I need to make sure people see me differently than I am. Otherwise it's going to make God look bad. Mm. And that's when we mistake our as if self for our best self. You know, we had an interview with Dr. Naomi Padgett where she said, you know, the people really, really impacted her were the ones that didn't take her mistakes as who she really was uh, and gave her another chance. And so if communities of faith did that for each other, say, okay, yeah, well, I, I know anybody can screw up. That doesn't get an award around here. We're going to help you find your real self. <laughs> Uh, yeah. you know, all of us can perform that doesn't get an award around here. We're going to help you live that as a real self. Mm-hmm. You'd actually create an environment where people would want to connect to each other to, to attach and uh, to step out of their, their enemy mode expectation that if you were to find out what's going on inside, you wouldn't be on my side. You'd be against me. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so much of uh, religious life becomes enemy mode interactions, a lot of it simple enemy mode. I'm just not going to engage with you. Um, occasionally stupid enemy mode. I'm going to go off on you because you're making me look bad. Uh, and a lot of intelligent enemy mode where I'm going to just put out my avatar self and uh, let's see if we can get some followers. Mm-hmm. Well, and it just reminds me that the central teaching of what Jesus what he taught when, when asked, like, what are the two most important commandments? It wasn't anything about looking good. It was love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. It was a very embodied love of from the inward places 
bringing it out of love and loving your neighbor as yourself. And then he also warned um, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount of there's going to be people who will come to him at the last day with a list of accomplishments. And it, it reminds me of what you're talking about with like an image of their as if self of look, look at all these things we did for you. Mm-hmm. And in the end, he says, I didn't know you. So I think that's, that is a, a heavy, but encouraging place to, to wrap up this interview. Um, as we talk about the as if self and living from the inward out, um, big thank you to Major General Jack Briggs and for all that he's doing working um, with the houseless. And thank you to Ray for that interview. And we will be looking forward to our next interview um, with retired Congressman Jeff Davis. So thank you all for, for listening and we will talk again next time. You've been listening to the Escaping Enemy Mode podcast. To learn more about the book by Dr. Jim Wilder and Ray Woolridge, visit escapingenemymode.com.